0: Let's do it. We are back. Thank you. Ooh. Could you just dial the, uh, the lights down like a shade? I turned them up too high. It's reflecting off my glasses peculiarly, oddly. Yeah, that works. All right, so we have got... Um, We've got some text tonight. And I'm just gonna be straight up um some seriously convicting text for me uh tonight. So get excited. Open up some open up a vein, I guess, here uh right on stage. So get out the the paper towels, we're gonna need to clean up some blood. Um <laughs> ladies, you you don't wanna sit up front like last time? No, we're missing a bunch of them. Okay. All right. Well, sit wherever you want, that's fine. Uh, let's pray, uh, and then we will get into the text. Uh, Lord God, we come to you tonight, and we thank you for this time that we get to gather together, and we thank you for uh, your faithfulness and your grace and your mercy to us, and that all the times that we don't get it or screw up, that you just remain faithful and pursue us. And so we pray that we would in kind pursue you. And continue to engage with your word and with each other, your body, your church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are in Acts 4.32, uh, and we're going to go through six seven. Uh, right before the introduction. Well, Stephen is introduced in, at the beginning of 6, and then next week we'll get into... Stephen shows up, flash in the pan, and he's dead. Spoiler alert, that's next week. Um, All right, so now, uh, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him or her was their own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who f- heard of these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all of the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them But not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, "'Men of Israel, take care that you are about to do with these men.' For before these days, Thetis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing, and they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So we've got a lot of moving and shaking going on here. So we start off. Remember last week? If we go one verse back, and when they had prayed, the when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak with. Speak the word of God with boldness. So last week we concluded with this idea of the disciples praying to receive boldness and them receiving it. And we get this interesting conclusive kind of summary of what is happening within the church at the time. Um, and so we see as the narrative is being shaped, at times we see very specific instances of what's happening with specific people, at times we see other more general references to what's happening with the church. Um, and we see how the church is functioning in public, in private. Uh, and so here we see a variety of, of locations and what is happening within the church. Well, right away, Luke gives us the summary of how the church is functioning. And what sticks out, right out of the gate, is that this full number. Now, we, we can... We can draw up a very interesting um, story problem if we want to try and figure out the exact number of who, how many people it is. It's somewhere between five and 10,000 people who are considered a part of this full number of those who believe. But what is important is that they are abiding within one heart. So Luke says they have one heart and soul. And so what is so important is the church at this point, very important to make that distinction, is unified. So they are of one mind, one heart. There is great unity that exists within the church because unity within the body is arguably the most important thing for a body to have. If you've ever had a body part that is out of joint, and you are literally disjointed, it is not a good time. I dislocated my shoulder in high school, and it is not a good time. And so unity within the physical body is very important, and unity within the church body is very important. If you uh, think about reading through Paul's letters, constantly he is talking about the importance of unity and trying to get the, the churches that exist to be unified in how they function. Which begs the question, how do we live in unity and disagreement? (laughs) Because so often it's the case, we believe that unity has no disagreement. And I know John's told this joke before about the guy who's stranded on the island and the people show up to save him and he has these structures and he says, you know, this is my church. And they're like, what's that building? That's the church I used to go to and that's the church I'm going to go to when I leave this church. Um, <laughs> how often is it the case that, that when we have disagreement, we believe that we cannot also at the same time have unity? And so certainly, as we see throughout the church in, in Acts, they don't always agree on how things should happen but they are unified around Christ and the importance of who Christ is and how the church body is to care for and function within this church structure. Because what does it look like? Not only are they unified, but how are they living? Well, no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was their own, but they had everything in common there was not a needy person among them for as many were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need now it's important because there can be this interpretation of this that leans more towards i'm just going to say it communism <laughs> thank you <laughs> And if you've watched Oppenheimer, you know how opposed Americans are to communism. So we just, like, the, yeah, we're just not going to really want to go there. Uh, it's like you don't own anything, you sell everything you have, and then it's all pooled together in this giant pool, and we all share everything in common, uh, meaning that we don't own anything. Everyone owns everything. That's not exactly what's happening here. What's happening here? is the church is unified and they know that there are people who have needs. And so as they see a need arise, they say, I have extra, therefore I will sell what I have to meet the need of another person. But I will use the apostles as the the mediator between me and my brother or sister in Christ so that my brother and sister in Christ doesn't feel like they owe me anything because they haven't received it directly from me. And I use this example, uh, and I'll just use it again. So, for example, Nick, he has a need, and his need is he has dropped his cooking pot on the ground in his kitchen, and it is broken. And so Nick needs a cooking pot. And Neil, okay, Neil says, I have an extra chicken. And I know a potter that I will trade my chick, I could trade my chicken to who will give me a pot that then I can give to Nick. And so Neil gives his chicken to Tom and says, because Tom's an apostle, of course, and he says, Tom, you take this chicken, you know, to Dane, who's a potter, and get Nick. And, and so there's this: Nick gets his pot, Neil gets rid of his chicken, everyone's happy because Neil has done something good for a fellow brother in Christ, and he doesn't even know who it is, but everyone's happy. And so it is this communal existence, but not in the communistic way that oftentimes it can be interpreted. Now, again, part of the challenge for us is we, especially where we live, is kind of, I would say, (laughs) pseudo-rural. So it's not like, Uber rural, but it's not like we live in a city. You know, if we all lived in the city where we're all sharing things, it's easier to go over to your neighbors and say, "Hey, I need a few eggs, or I need this, or I need that," and we can all share things in common. But we live in this kind of interesting pseudo-rural situation. So, I have a proposal, and, and so I'm just curious. I'm just going to float this out there. Um, so we two things exist within the church, and they're so important. One is that they are unified in mind and spirit and all of these things. And, and the other thing is they are sharing all of these things in common. So what would it be easier for us to do? To, uh, we're going to have what I would say is the biggest garage sale. I mean, Lutheran Church of the Cross has seen nothing on this garage sale that we're going to have, okay? <laughs> we're going to take all of our garages, sheds, storage units, shops, I mean, we're gonna have. I think we're gonna have 500 table saws. We're gonna just sell everything, okay? Because really, we only need about 50. I mean, Scott, you can keep yours because you need yours for work. We're gonna keep. We only need about 50 table saws. We're gonna have a um, a library of tools, is what we're gonna call it. So no one's gonna need to possess their own table saw. You just come, you check out a table saw, you use it, you return it, and then we're gonna pool all of our money. And then if somebody has a need, they're going to come to and they're going to say, hey, I have this need. And then we're just going to meet that need. So what's going to be easier to do? Garage sale or unity of mind and spirit? (laughs) What do we think? Who's with me? Some people are like, let's have a garage sale because I don't really have much to sell. (laughs) What if it's both? What if it's both? Because, you know, we have this tendency that, that is so inbred within us throughout our cultural uh, upbringing of personal property, possessions, ownership, all of these things. And we have this, um, we have this, I don't even know if it's like an a upper Midwestern thing, this... If we think we have a hard time saying, I was wrong, I think the next hardest phrase, three words, yes. Some of you are like, "Uh, no, I don't even want to hear it out loud. I need help. Such a hard phrase for us to say. But in reality, that is what is embodied in the body of Christ. This mutuality and reciprocity that exists so that if we have a need, we share that need and those within the body meet that need. Because we love, there is a psychological reality that we love to help people out. We love to help people out. We love to give people things and yet it is so hard for us to receive things. And yet we see this Beautiful picture of how the church is functioning as the early church, and if this is the model that we're shooting for, why is it that we bristle so hard against some of these things? Why is it that we we have such a hard time saying, okay, yeah, I'm a, I want to like live into what it means to be a part of the church, and it's like, ah. Uh, except for that part. Because, like, I really like my stuff. I, like, want to just keep my stuff. I want to keep my stuff around. I don't want to have to ask, you know, Nick doesn't want to have to ask cause, and tell that he's broken his pot and that he needs a pot or that I need help with this or help with that. When in reality, that's exactly how the body of Christ is functioning. And so we have this beautiful picture of unity. And then this next story is the opposite of that. (laughs) And so we see this story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? And so notice um, Ananias and his wife, they have this piece of property and they choose to sell it and they make this deal that they're only going to bring a portion of what they've sold and and put it in, but they're going to say that they've brought in the whole portion. And, you know, we get this phrase, Peter, I mean, if we've wondered how Peter, like the boldness of Peter, I don't think this is a, like w- the language that I would lead with when someone was doing something that I wasn't sure was of Christ. But just try this on. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? <laughs> like that is, that's pretty like direct. Like punch you in the face, Direct. Why has, the, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds? Now, so often is the case that we, we can see this and we, we dissect this part of Acts from the narrative and we try to use the Ananias and Sapphira story as if it sits as itself. It does not sit as itself. It sits within the narrative scope of what Luke is trying to do within the story. He's just told us that the church is beautiful. They're sharing their things. Everyone has unity. And then he says, except this is also happening. So part of it is acknowledging that the church is not perfect. The bigger thing, though, is what Ananias and Sapphira are doing is an attempt at being a disunifying agent within the church. And so Satan sees this opportunity and he sees the beautifulness that's happening in the church and within that there's an opportunity to create a fracture or disunity within the church. Because Peter even says, you didn't have to sell your property. You could have been up front and just said, yeah, we don't want to sell our property. Totally fine. So you know that's like the anti-communist view of how this is going down. Or you could have said, we sold our property and here's half the proceeds. But they're trying to thread this line where they are going to create deceit and deception within the church and deception within the body and lies within the body create disunity. And disunity is exactly what Satan wants to use to fracture and to break apart the church. And so we get into the speculation of, is it actually Satan that's coming and filling um, them? You know, Satan is one being, so he can't be in all places at one time. Or is it the work of Satan, and, and Luke is just using it in a very picturesque way, that is the work of Satan that is driving them towards this disunity? Because that is the real issue. The issue here is not, the selling of personal property, and the giving of the money to the body. The real issue here is these two individuals are about to plant a seed of disunity within a completely unified church. And again, that is the number one thing that Satan tries to do. Anytime there is a church fracture or split, It grieves God and certainly it grieves the Holy Spirit. And how often is the case? It starts with some sort of little thing that then is, as all sin, it's just this little seed that gets planted and then it is watered and it grows. And before you know it, there is this giant fracture within the church. And so right away, early on in the church, we see the importance of unity and what happens when there's unity in the church, and we see the consequences of disunity and the severity upon which God sees anyone who is trying to break apart his body. I mean, you just think about it. anytime there is a threat to our own physical body, we have a visceral response, right? I've told this before where you know, my daughter... She, She's now at college, so she doesn't do this anymore. But she used to love, like her uh, bedroom is in the hallway. So she would just like stand just inside her doorway, knowing what I was about to pass down the hallway. And then she would jump out and try to scare me. Direct threat to my body. Direct threat to my body. And you just naturally are like, ah! You just want to like lash out. That's kind of the same thing that's happening here. There's this direct threat to the unity of the body of Christ, and there are severe consequences. Now, certainly when we hear this story, we can, we can think back to Old Testament, when we see the same thing happening uh, in Joshua, where uh, I can't remember what his name is, but he drops dead. You're like, God takes this pretty seriously. And the answer is yes. I mean, we have two dead bodies in a very short period of time, Because of disunity. So if we want to talk about whether or not God cares about the unity of the body, I think the two corpses that have been buried in Acts, the beginning of Acts chapter 5, tell us that God cares deeply about the unification of the body. And so the question becomes that we, uh, I didn't think it was worth I thought it needed a little bit more time than we have for discussion groups, so I just put it as the ponder question. Um, What things do we do that contribute to disunity in the church, and do we see them as coming from Satan? Now, if you feel like just randomly discussing that, God bless you. But I thought maybe you just want to marinate on that question a little bit longer. And what happens within the church? We see this great picture unity, all these things. And now, in two verses, what is coming upon the people that are hearing about this? They are terrified. Right? I mean, people are dropping dead. Wouldn't you be terrified? Your media thought is like, what have I done that might get me killed? Have I done something that might get me killed? Have I said the wrong thing? Have I done the wrong thing? And great fear is a coming upon the whole church. Now, We see that picture, and then that is contrasted with what is continuing to happen. Many signs and wonders being done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And we see this separation, this physical separation that's happening within the church. In verse 13, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So as we talked about last week, they're going into the portico. How many went home and Googled portico, hit images, Solomon's portico? You're like, oh, yeah, that's what it looks like. Very cool. Um, So they're in the portico, but there's a bunch of people that are like, I'm not sure how close I want to get to this. Now, part of this could be the case that the fear that they've heard about Ananias and Sapphira is overwhelming them, and they don't want to get too close because they don't want to get killed. Fair. I mean, that's a pretty fair thing. Also, if you remember last week, what had happened to to them when they were teaching in Solomon's Portico after they healed the guy? They get brought before the council. So they're seeing all of these things happening. They're seeing them brought before the council. They don't want to be a part of that. Nobody really likes to be arrested, I don't think. I mean, some people like to arrest people, but not everyone loves to be arrested. I don't think. Like the one time that I was booked, As a 7th grader, I didn't love it. That's a different story for a different time. Um, So they're keeping their distance from what's happening. And so we have this interesting contrast of they're a part of the group, but they're not directly with the group because they're afraid. And yet Luke says more and more people were being added to their numbers. And so what is it? Are people moving away? Are there people being added? And I just have this vision of these people, the apostles, the 120 that had the whole like Pentecost thing and the spirit and the tongues and all that, like these people are like 100% sold out, fully committed to who God is and what he's doing. It's kind of like this group right here. (laughs) That was a compliment to you. Some of you chuckled like, that's us? Yeah, I think so. Uh, these people are fully committed, fully sold out. They don't care what's going to happen to them. And then you have these newer believers that are kind of on the periphery and they want to be a part of it, but they're not sure they want to deal with what's going to happen. They're slightly afraid. How do they move to the middle? And if we all sat and thought about it long enough, I think we could all come to a place where we are here today, but at some point in our past, we were in a much different place as it relates to who God is and how he works in our lives. So, do we have the ability to have compassion in this location at the center for those people who are at the fringes who are a part of the body but are afraid about being a part of the body, concerned what might happen, they believe but they're not sure, there's doubt but they want to be a part of it. Can we see them with compassion and go to them and say, I see you're here, curious." What's going on? Love to hear your story. Maybe you could share with me about what you're experiencing and why you have yourself over in this location. And then how do we move closer to the middle? And obviously there's a ton of people in uh, all along the spectrum. I think of it this way. As I mentioned, super convicting for me this week. I just have to admit, and you know, this is going out to the internet, and so just... Full fairness and conversation. I had just like this really, really terrible attitude about Christmas Eve this year. And Christmas Eve, yes, I said, you're like, did he just say Christmas Eve? Yes, I said it. And I'm talking about Christmas Eve at church, okay? So I'm just like, again, there's blood on the floor and it's mine, okay? Um, and I just call it Satan, I call it just malaise, I don't know. Um, and it was just this feeling of like, what's the point? Like, honestly, what's the point? Like, you show up like once or twice a year. Like, is, is it even worth it? Like, do you even honestly care about what's happening in here? Or does this just fit so neatly within your Christmas card and you got to have a picture at church to tell your family that you went to church or to show your family that you go to church and all of these things. I admit, these are not Christ-like thoughts. You're like, how are you saying this? How do you still have a job? Some of you are thinking. (laughs) I get it. I am not perfect. I'm not even close to perfect. And the Holy Spirit just was like, as I'm reading this and then after Christmas, like, Eric, they showed up. They were there. Why are you so critical and judgmental? And I, I talked to my therapist about this part of me that is so, so critical. They're like on the edge, right? And I just saw this picture of these people that they're right on the edge. It's like, I'm here, but I don't know. I doubt, but I'm here. And rather than being like, well, once you start showing up to Wednesday nights, then we'll really talk. Because, like, that's the standard. I mean, can I get an amen? (laughs) Like, if we're wondering about standards of apostleship, I mean, Tom is an apostle because he's here on Wednesday night. And he's in the third row. Can I get an amen? (laughs) You don't, you're not an apostle in the back, okay? That's just how this thing works. And it was like, okay, okay what is the story that is happening at the fringe? And can I get off my high horse to leave the center, to go to the margins and say, tell me your story. And let's walk together to this place where we're following Christ and growing together. And I was like, yes, you're right. And I repented of this and I've sought forgiveness from God for this attitude and this posture. It's just the reality. Because... Here we have this picture of, you know, these guys are getting arrested and thrown in jail and beaten. And there are people like, I'm not sure I want to get involved to that level. And so we can have this tendency to say, well, then if you aren't fully committed to the place that I'm committed, then I don't have time for you. And what I'm just this Holy Spirit conviction of why don't we have compassion for those on the margins of the body To go to them and say, can I walk with you towards the middle? Versus saying, once you get to the middle, then I'll have time for you. And maybe that's just me. And so this has just been my 10 minutes of confession. If so, I feel better. I've already confessed it and been forgiven for it. So I'm just recounting it. And many of you are like, not even, at the annual meeting on Sunday, there's probably going to be a motion to have Eric excused from his duties and to seek absolution of whatever. I sin very regularly, and we're not even done with the conviction, and we're not even halfway through this passage. So, I mean, just buckle up. So, what's happening, though, is God is adding to their numbers, and and, oh, by the way, all of these people are getting healed. Like, these miracles are happening. People gathered to the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and the afflicted and the demon-possessed, and they are all healed. Like, the in-breaking of God is happening through Jesus. The kingdom is here, and it's still breaking through, and there's these miraculous things that are happening. And, like, why is Peter's shadow so powerful? It's just, like, unbelievable to us. We, We don't even know what's happening, but what we know is the church is increasing And there's some folks that are not really happy about it. The high priests are not happy. The Sadducees, not happy. They're not only not happy, but they're jealous. And so they bring in the people, right? They bring in the apostles. And they're like, "Uh, didn't we just tell you that you shouldn't be doing this? And, you know, so really, you shouldn't be doing this because we're going to punish you. And they're like, well, here's the deal. We must obey, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel. That's you guys, not you guys, you guys in the temple. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And they're like, it doesn't matter what you do to us, what you say to us, we must be about the things of God. Remember Jesus, what, what he said when Mary and Joseph are like, where have you been? And he's like, don't you know I need to be in my father's house? Later he says, I must be about my father's work. They're like, yeah, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter to us what happens to us. We are here to witness to who God is. And Gamaliel, which is interesting, he's going to come back up again in Acts 22:3. 3. He is Paul's rabbi which I didn't know that until just this week. I was like yesterday's many days old when I found out that Gamaliel in Acts 5 is actually uh, Paul's rabbi. And he says, here's the deal, guys, because it's all guys. God, if God is doing something, we can't stop him. If God is on the move and active and doing something, good luck, we can't stop him. And it is just... The reality, even this person who is not a follower of Jesus at this point, he's like, let's, let's sit back and see. Let's sit back and see if God is truly at work. Because if God is at work, we're not going to stop him. And what I want to ask is, does Gamaliel ever come to follow Jesus? Because he stands up with clarity and declares That if these guys are truly from God, they can't be stopped. And then his own student, Paul, starts doing this thing. You know, spoiler alert, Paul's going to enter the story and do lots of things. And so does he come to this place where he's like, oh my goodness, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. And does he ever come around? I don't know. But what happens to them in uh, verse 40? And when they called in the apostles, they beat them. They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left. Okay, check this out. They left the the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And they stopped and started doing something else. No. No. And every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So again, they're, they're told don't preach. They keep preaching. They get locked up. Notice, again, I had mentioned this before, but angel shows up. They're in prison. Something major happens. Somebody brought up the point that why does the angel lock the door behind them? Good question. I don't know. Makes Just to make sure it's extra secure. Like if... If you make a prison break, do you just like go right around the corner? Like if I, heaven forbid, I'm incarcerated in Crow Wing County Jail and like I break out because I probably, never mind, I can't say that out loud. If I were to miraculously get out of jail free, like we're playing Monopoly, get out of Crow Wing County Jail, you don't go stand by the post office, right? Yeah. (laughs) We don't, <laughs> I mean, that's in essence, they're in jail, they're imprisoned, they are let out of jail free by the angel, and they're like, we're not going anywhere. In case you're wondering, we're not going anywhere. Then they get beat, and the next day, they're like, oh yeah, watch this. And they proceed every day in the temple and from house to house. This isn't just located at the temple. They are doing this thing in homes throughout the city, and they're teaching and preaching. But notice this. They are beaten by the council, and their response is not fear. It is not woe is us. It is rejoicing. And I know we, we think about this, and this, the probability of this happening to any one of us in this room is is about the same probability as me dunking a basketball in the gym at 10 feet, okay? I mean, like, you're saying there's a chance, but it's not real high, right? And so as we discuss this question of, you know, how do we handle suffering or uh, in the face of suffering for God, how do we handle it? We're just going to acknowledge that our suffering for Christ doesn't look like this. It doesn't look like us getting beat and imprisoned for Jesus. It doesn't. We live in a beautiful, wonderful country where our religious liberty is better today than it ever has been before, and we get to be free in our expression of religion to the, to the nth degree, to whatever degree we want. We're not worried about being arrested or beaten or any of that stuff. It's actually the other stuff that's more terrifying to us. It's the, well, what if that person we've talked about this, right? What if the person I go up to is like, "You're weird? What if the person that I invite over for dinner is like, "Oh, I don't really want to hang out with you <laughs> what if What if the person that I talk to at work about about who Jesus is now starts to say bad things behind my back, about me? You know whatever it is for us. We just keep it in perspective, right? So when we talk about suffering for Jesus, we're not talking about getting beaten and arrested. And yet we're talking about suffering for Jesus because that's the reality. So they have this other problem, right? So notice we see this kind of uh, need, what I would say is like a need sandwich, right? Like, there's people who are in need earlier on at the end of four, and those needs are getting met. And then at the beginning of six, we see this other little need need sandwich. So we have like two needs that are happening, two slices of bread, right? And in the middle, we have like a bunch of interesting stuff happening. So in these days, we have the first kind of issue that's being arisen within the church, and it's because this one group, the Hellenists, these Greek-speaking Jews, probably people that had been dispersed Jews that have been sent out and dispersed, learned Greek, spoke Greek, are back in Jerusalem as a part of the church. Their widows seem to not be getting uh, the daily distribution of the resources. So we know that, that there's resources that are being distributed, and a group of the church is not getting the resources that they need. That's a problem. And so they bring in the disciples, and the disciples are like, okay, yep, this is a problem. And they make this interesting acknowledgment. They say, what are we called to do? The disciples have a very specific job. What is their job? To witness, to preach, same thing, to witness to what God has done in their life, to witness to who Jesus is, and they acknowledge if we are overseeing the distribution of food, which is very important, then we can't do the things that we're supposed to be doing, which is preaching and teaching and witnessing, which is kind of all one thing lumped together. And so they create this subgroup of people of the seven. Now, the people that they serve, uh, or the people that they choose, what, is they, what do they have to be? Good repute, full of the Spirit, that's kind of an important thing, and full of wisdom, Okay, so full of the spirit, good repute. These people are within the church body and they are going to fulfill this ministry task. Now, what can easily come about here is a ranking system, right? Like, well, the preaching and teaching is the most important thing and the serving is like some uh, underling thing that they do and then everything after that becomes like a sub thing under like the real work of ministry 100% not true 100% that is a line of thinking that comes from satan as a way to divide the church so i want us just to kind of squash that right out of the gate like what i am doing in here is not more important than what's happening in the nursery what I am doing in here is not somehow more ministry than what happens on a Monday morning or a Friday morning when, the pe- when folks come in to clean the building. What I'm doing in here is not somehow more ministry than the folks who serve at a funeral or the person from Timberwood that's serving at the warming shelter tonight from 6.30 to 10, or the people that serve at the food shelf or the people that serve at the soup kitchen or the people that are volunteering with the youth. It's not a ranking. Everyone who serves God is, a, is on the same ministry level. Amen. I am not, some, you're like, of course you're not. You just admitted on Christmas Eve this <laughs> grievous sin. We know that you are not better than we are. I mean, seriously. And next Wednesday, you're not even going to be up there. Because you have been so demoted, you're going to be in the nursery (laughs) where you belong. (laughs) To serve the body of Christ is to be a minister of the gospel. To be a disciple of Christ is to serve the body of Christ is to be a minister. To be a disciple of Christ is to be a minister period. So, if we identify as followers of Jesus Christ, then we also identify as ministers. I know it makes many of us feel very uncomfortable. That's just the reality of what we're seeing here within the early church. There is a need that needs to be met, and people step up. And they are on par. They're doing different things, but equally as important. That's why Paul, in his you know he, in his letter he talks about the body and, and how the the body functions and you're not more important because you're you're a toe or you're this or you're an elbow or you're that it's the same thing that's happening here and this is this is like so hard for me and it's one thing that i think probably i'm just not going to categorize it i know that it irritates Uh, the person who is my boss, whose name is John. I have a hard time relinquishing control of things. Like I used to love to mow the grass. And someone's like, why are you mowing the grass? Because I love it. That's not really your ministry category. But what if I want to (laughs) mow? Because if you mow the grass, then you can't do something else. Or if you do this or that or the other thing, and it's like, I know, but what was that three-word phrase that I can't say? I need help! Right? And so we have this interesting reality as the church is beginning to grow and mature, we see this division of labor that is ministry. And I just wonder if we if we thought about the things that we did for Christ as ministry, would we do them differently? Or if we saw the opportunities, let me say that slightly differently, if we saw the opportunities that arose in front of us as a ministry, would it change how we view them? Because God has brought us all together, much like Liam Neeson, with a unique set of skills, not those kind of skills, different skills, But look around. We are all different with different skills, and we can all do different things. And it's not because that's more important than that or that's more important than that. It's because we are a diverse body unified around Christ, brought together to advance the gospel in our location. To go to the margins and say, hey, tell me your story. I once was in your place. I'd love to help this process work. Let's go to our groups.